Today, my job is to fight the misinformation and give people a better path towards health and then trying to elevate the people that I think have the strongest voices because we don't win this battle alone. I cannot think of a single thing that is more important than people being able to take agency and ownership over their health in a way that is meaningful for them so they can live the lives that they want without being sucked into things that fundamentally, and this is part of the argument of the book, break them mentally so that they then fail physically. And that is the cyclical process that we have seen over time. It is getting worse. It doesn't mean that everyone does it, but my mission, my purpose, my vision, the thing that get, keeps me going and also frustrates me at the same time is helping people be healthier in a, in a sustainable way. Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, Brad Stolberg. Brad, we got an exciting podcast today with a special guest. What's going on? So today on the show, we've got Adam Bornstein. Adam has been in the health, fitness, and nutrition world, uh, I don't know, for the last 20 years. And really at the top of it, he was the lead editor of men's health, fitness, and nutrition coverage for about five years. And since then, he's taken on a really interesting new project, which is helping Arnold Schwarzenegger build basically a small media company, a newsletter, a podcast, and really using Arnold's platform for good. Now, what makes Adam and Arnold and their team so different is... Um, you know, they've kind of already made it. They've been at the top, so they don't need followers. They don't need to sell outrageous claims and they don't have to grift. They genuinely want to help people. And as you'll see in this conversation, Adam wrote a book all about nutrition. And there are so few good books all about nutrition because so quickly they get into this diet or that evil food group or follow only this plan. And Adam's book isn't that. So in this conversation, we kind of do the opposite of what we did last week. Last week, we started with one of our favorite grifters, who will not be named. You can go back and listen to that podcast. And we talked about how that person ended up bashing carbohydrates as this really bad macronutrient that carbohydrates are killing us. And we went into all the reasons why so many people that don't have any expertise in nutrition always end up with some sort of very restrictive diet that they're peddling. Well, today we wanted to bring you a solution, which is Adam's approach to nutrition and eating well in the 21st century. So that's our guest today. All right. And if you find this conversation intriguing and interesting, which I know you will, you can check out Adam's new book, which is out now called You Can't Screw This Up, Why Eating Takeout, Enjoying Dessert, and Taking the Stress Out of Dieting Leads to Weight Loss That Lasts. We highly recommend it. It's uh, it's one of the few diet books, nutrition books that we actually recommend. So with that, let's get to this conversation with Adam. Hey, Adam, it's a pleasure to have you on the Growth Equation podcast today. Thanks so much for making the time. I appreciate you guys having me. It is an absolute pleasure. So before we dive into the topic of your book, which is nutrition and diet, 
Uh, why don't you give our listeners the 30 second to one minute backdrop on who you are and how you got there? Some of our listeners will have known you from your work over the years, but perhaps you'll be new to others. Yeah. So you're going to start with the thing that I enjoy least, which is talking about myself. So let's just rip the bandaid off. I am a uh, psychology researcher turned traditional journalist turned digital media journalist turned entrepreneur. So the majority of people probably know me from the time uh, when I was men's health, fitness and nutrition editor, which I did for about four to five years. And that started back around 2007, 2008. And then for a few years, I ran livestrong.com. I was the editorial director when it was the largest fitness and nutrition site on the web. At one point, we had 45 million people a month coming to the site. Um, And then they wanted to, best way to put it, uh, just in my opinion, create content that was socially irresponsible. And I don't throw that term around lightly and I didn't want to be a part of it. So then I left to start my own business and I have been working with probably every different fitness and nutrition media business under the sun. I've written many books, ghostwritten many books. And uh, recently I even tried to clean up the supplement industry at one point alongside LeBron James and Arnold Schwarzenegger, Cindy Crawford and Lindsey Vaughn. And I found out, um, man, you think you get a lot of star power and you take the time to only make the supplements that work, only do it the right way, invest a lot of money in making sure that everything is clean and there's no banned substances or no toxic metals. And, you know, not a lot of people care about that. And then today, my job is, uh, you know, in the best sense of the term is to fight the misinformation and give people a better path towards health and then try and elevate the people that I think have the strongest voices because we don't win this battle alone. I cannot think of a single thing that is more important than people being able to take agency and ownership over their health in a way that is meaningful for them so they can live the lives that they want without being sucked into things that fundamentally, and this is part of the argument of the book, break them mentally so that they then fail physically. And that is the cyclical process that we have seen over time. It is getting worse. It doesn't mean that everyone does it, but my mission my purpose, my vision, the thing that get, keeps me going and also frustrates me at the same time is helping people be healthier in a, in a sustainable way. So I want to try to put some guardrails on the conversation around nutrition in particular. And two things I think are true at the same time. The first is that for most people living in the Western world, we're living in a food environment that preys upon our evolutionary mismatch. We evolved to want highly palatable, high caloric foods because we evolved in a time of scarcity. And now we have these foods in abundance and highly processed foods are associated with increasing levels of body fatness and poor metabolic health. They're everywhere. They're delicious. They're hard to stop eating. On the other hand, we have a very insane, I'll say diet culture which ostracizes and villainizes specific nutrients, specific micronutrients, specific food groups, and often leads people down rabbit holes of unwellness at best, and at worst, true psychological illness, all the way to anorexia, which we know is one of the most deadly diseases that impacts young people. So I personally frame this problem is if you just kind of go about eating in America, odds are your diet's not going to be healthy. But if you 
overly focus on nutrition, or at least you buy into quote unquote diet culture, odds are that's not going to be healthy for you either. So if this is the world that we live in, I'm curious, where do you start your analysis of framing how to solve this problem? Or you could disagree with me and say that's not actually the problem. No, I I think what makes the problem so accurate is that they seemingly don't play nicely together, right? So the food environment is anchored against us. So then you're uh, foundationally, you're basing the premise of like being healthy is very, very hard, which creates this environment of fear. And then diet culture itself is fundamentally telling you that we have these frail, fragile bodies that if we eat a little bit of sugar, or if we have too much inflammation, or if we don't balance our hormones, we're all going to fall apart, right? And then we identify new villains repeatedly that then preys upon this fear. So we take a little bit of scientific knowledge and manipulate it in a way that makes people live in fear and not understand how their body really works. And more importantly, not understand the journey of what it takes to get from where you are to where you want to be, right? So what I then try to do and why it took, you know, this book, you know, you can't screw this up as a, it's a nine-year journey, truly. Nine years ago, I wanted to write this book. And it took that long how to figure it out, how to contextualize it, and how to break down what the problem was and what a potential solution is to such a big problem, knowing that is to your point, like, there's so many things you can tackle. There is not one single thing that causes us to be unhealthy. The food environment is one aspect of it. For some people, there are genetic predispositions to gaining weight. And I mentioned this in the book. Some people have an easier time. They have a weight gain gene. About 20% of people have an easier time gaining weight. But I mentioned this right now at the top of the show because maybe you're one of those people or you might even suspect this. A lot of people don't even know, right? Because they don't do the testing. Those people with the weight gain gene do not have more trouble losing weight though right? The difficulty, the barrier to losing weight is equal for people. But some people, a small percentage, do have uh, a, an easier time of gaining weight. So where I look is like, what are the things that stand in the way of people? And some of them uh, end up being the complexity of plans. You have the cost or the perceived cost of plans. And you have the inconvenience. And all of this is round up because diets have told us one very simple thing. That if you change one thing, somehow all of this gets better. And that is not true, and that is very, very uh, dangerous. Because what ends up happening is the moment that you cannot follow a plan to a T, the moment you cannot be perfect, the moment you cannot be 100%, which is impossible. It is impossible. We are sent down one of two roads, and both are very bad. So let's give the example of you go on a no-carb diet plan. I'm not even going to talk and we can discuss whether that is good or bad. You're told that carbs are bad. You're told that your body can't handle carbs and you're given a million different reasons why you should fear all carbs. Keep in mind, this is bullshit, right? And if you so choose to have a follow a low-carb lifestyle, that's okay. But it's not necessary. But you are told and you buy into the idea that you cannot have carbohydrates, The moment that you have carbs, when you are living in a carb-starved environment, you're probably not going to feel so good, right? And it's not because carbs are bad. It's because you have removed something and then you've probably binged or eaten too much of it because you were desiring it. And then you see that you start to think, oh, wow, it was the carbs 
all along, not the manipulation that puts you in a position where suddenly at one point in your life, you could eat carbs and not feel terrible. But suddenly, now that I eat carbs, I feel terrible. These things must be poisonous. So you think it was the carbs all along and you believe that this is the only way to go. So you you kind of double down and you restrict even more and you go to more extreme behaviors that put your body in a position where it is harder for it to feel healthier. It is harder for it to see success. Or you have that moment where you eat carbs, you realize that you love pasta and rice, and you see that like there is no possible way that you can be healthy. So you just say, fuck it. And you give up completely. And to steal an analogy, which I've said before from Dr. Spencer Nadolsky, he's like, it's such a funny thing because this would be akin to someone like getting a flat tire and then deciding to slash the other three tires. Right. But this is what we do. We make one tiny mistake and we just say, like, I screwed up. So the people who double down end up burning out even more intensely and then still end up saying, fuck it. The people who say, fuck it, get off a diet and never eat healthy and think that they are doomed. And at some point, they return to a new diet because it's no longer carbs. It's a new villain. It wasn't the carbs after all, it's something else. And we repeat this process over and over. And psychologically and physiologically, it does so much damage. So the question for me isn't just how we can outsmart the cost, complexity, and convenience of how do we eat healthier in an environment designed against us, but how do we get out of a game where we are told that we must be perfect and when we are not, we internalize that guilt into maladaptive behaviors that lead us down a terrible, terrible road that seemingly has no end. So I love that explanation, and I'm going to give you a a brief story why. Um, When I was in grad school in exercise science, but we had to take nutrition courses, so I'm sitting there, and I'll never forget, one of my professors put up a couple slides and said, I'm going to talk about essentially, you know, the the demonization of macronutrients. She starts putting up advertisements. And she says, this one is from 1890. This one's from 1930. This one's from 1950. And all it was was cycling back and forth between demonizing, you know, different single ingredients or different single things, which creates, you know, which what you're explaining creates this kind of fear cycle that is impossible to win. And that was like an aha moment in my brain where I said, oh, like, this this diet demonization thing is like it's part of a historical trend to sell the latest kind of fad and, and it's never being able to win. And what I think you just described there is what in the book, I think you called it like the the, the diet circle of hell. Yes. <laughs> Something to that degree. That's and, exactly what I call it. Dieting yeah. circle of hell. I've got a little illustration of a devil sitting somewhere in there, just manipulating, just enjoying in the flames, watching you suffer. It, and I love that because I want you if you can just expand on people on to how much of this is kind of the the mindset or approach or like magic you know solution thinking that is getting in our way from finding the actual individual things that you need to be able to do to have success in this realm yeah, I think the the issue here is like, how do you stop this dieting circle of hell? Is that you don't enter into the first place, and this is like, 
It is a manipulative relationship, one that the wellness industry has with the people that it's trying to help. And I say this being someone who's now been in this for 20 years. This has been my job. And at some point, and it probably even predated me, but I see it picking up steam, and it's not to point fingers, but it is to identify the critical nature of this, is like the wellness industry is fundamentally should be about wellness, but at some point it became about industry. And the problem with becoming about industry is that it is very easy for us to give someone short-term benefits or changes at the sacrifice of long-term suffering, knowing that those short-term changes will make people believe that this level of suffering and sacrifice and discomfort is what is necessary to be helpful. So we don't associate the long-term frustration with the plan, even though every time people follow a diet, they follow it with more pain, suffering, and waking than what predated it. And the research is very strong behind this. The people who end up going off diets, the rate of weight gain is more significant. Everyone who goes on diet does not regain their weight. Everyone who goes on diets does not regain even more. But research is pretty strong that the majority of people do regain the weight. And according to one UCLA study, over a two-year period, 67% of people gain back even more. And if the average person gains approximately one to two pounds per year, but the average person after a diet gains anywhere between four to eight pounds afterwards, then that ends up being a negative. And this is what you see. And the question is like, why are we allowing ourselves to be manipulated in the first place? And it's because like, it's everywhere you look. The hardest thing here is that social media and like the, the distribution of information can be a very good thing. It allows people like you and I to potentially reach millions of people. It can also be a very bad thing because the cheap and easy way to sell anything to anyone is to prey upon one of two emotions, fear or greed. And the wellness industry is very, very good at preying on both of those. And this is leaving the nutrition realm, right? This is looking at psychological behaviors of marketing. And using fear and greed to manipulate people, it is very easy to prey upon our fears and our greed of wanting to look, feel, and do a certain thing while having to put in minimal effort and hoping to get the results ultra fast. We live in a society of instant gratification. So much of this book is about psychology, right? I'm referencing like all the psychological methods and levers that wellness manipulates to get you to do short-term things so you have to keep on buying in over and over again. So the way that you avoid the circle of hell, and the circle of hell is very, very simple, right? Like you buy into this belief, you sacrifice everything, you hit a wall, you want to see more results, so you double down. You burn out even more. You fail worse than you would have. You spiral out of control. You buy into another plan, and you repeat the process. But because you're starting at a lower point, the deficit becomes bigger and bigger. So the analogy I give is like someone gives you a shovel and tells you, like, I want you to like dig out of this hole. But instead of like digging your way towards the surface, you're just digging your way deeper down. The way is to realize like, how do I identify before I even start that this is one of these trap doors that I refer to? And the trap door is that if the primary reason that someone is selling you something is based on fear, it's usually a red flag that it's not going to work. If the primary reason they tell you it's not going to uh, that this is better is that everyone else is wrong and they are right, it's probably not going to work. If they tell you that this one singular change will fix everything it's also another sleight of hand. Because again, these are the things that we want to believe. So the way, you know, there are ways out of the circle of hell once you're in there, but listen, no one wants to spell any, any time in hell, 
right? No one wants to be burning up. The best way is to avoid the trap. So we have to do a better job of identifying when what I call these things trap doors, right? Because like when you think back to the cartoons that we watch when we were kids, you'd see the person on the trap door and us, the viewer, right? Or us, the expert could see like, you're on a trap door. What are you doing? How do you not see it? But the person on the trap door can never see it. And that's where we kind of have to remove some of this shame and guilt. It's very easy to get sucked into things, but like you have to be able to see the tells, right? This is like a poker player of someone who's like manipulating you. There are very, very easy ways, I would say, to identify 90% of the plans that are just going to point you in the wrong direction because it's based on fear. It's based on this magic bullet principle. And it's based on like, there's something brand new that we discovered that we've never discovered before. And if we had only known that the lectins in your vegetables were killing you, we would have never told you to eat vegetables and you would have been healthier. And it's so crazy, but here's why it works. And I want to stress upon this. Our brains are really smart, but in like researching this book, I was I asked myself, like, why do we fall for this stuff? Why is it so easy? We're not dumb, and I don't think anyone's dumb. Our brains are fundamentally designed to light up and react to novel things. The newer and more different it is, fMRI shows our brains light up, and it's also more likely people can talk about dopamine and people freak out about it, but dopamine can trigger behavior. We get this surge, we get this excitement of something new, and it's like, it's so crazy, but like, we are much less likely to react to something that seems so boring and banal and like so easy it can't work, and we respond really well to the things that seem novel and new, and the funny thing is, science is rarely based on what is novel and new right? Good science, the stuff that you trust is based on reliability and validity. So the stuff that you can trust the most are the things that have been talked about most repeatedly, not the things that are brand new, but we will respond to the brand new stuff and act like, oh, that old news, oh, that that study that's been reproven 20 times, how could that possibly work? And it's cruel and it's not stupidity. It's not like education. It's, it's how we're wired. And that's, it's, it's hard unless we know how to recognize it. And and there's one other piece that I think ties into that, that, you know, again, Adam, I I started this book thinking I was reading a nutrition book. And then partway through, I realized, like, I'm reading a book about, like, psychology and identity. (laughs) And you had this wonderful section in there where I'm paraphrasing, but it was something along the lines of, like, part of the problem is we've tied our self-worth to this perception of, like, if only... I lose this weight, become healthier, whatever, then like I'm going to be fulfilled, happy, et cetera. And I forget the wording you used, but you essentially called BS. You said, this is illusion. Like this isn't it. Can, uh, for the listener who maybe hasn't thought of it in this framing, can you, you know, elucidate why it's so important to kind of like see this diet, you know, adventure journey through this kind of identity frame? Right. So there, there are two important reasons. And one's going to be about your actions, right? And then the other is going to be about like what is sustainable. So people think that they will be happier when they achieve X, Y, or Z goal. In the nutrition realm, the happiness comes from this after picture that they imagine. But the frustration that they feel isn't the appearance they see in the mirror. It's what allowed them to get into this position in the first place that stunts their action and makes them so unhappy with how they look. And, you know, I've been, you know, in this field for 
20 years and probably 10 years ago, the smartest thing I did was I started talking to people who were healthier, but older and like they're healthy and they're living their life, but they're not looking shredded. They don't have six pack all the time because they're 70, 80, 90 years old. And like the wisdom that you can like seek out from people who are living the life that they want can be uh, invaluable, if not completely empirical right? You're not going to get quantitative studies about this, but you start to see, and then you align it with psychological studies about self-perception and happiness. And people who tie their self-worth to something that is ephemeral, short-lasting, dependent on variables you can't control, right? At some point, we might all get injured or we could get sick, or life might throw so many barriers in your way that even though your health is important to you, you might be doing a minimum effective dose to keep you healthy, to keep you going, but it's not what would allow you to look your best. If your happiness is dependent upon variables and scenarios that you cannot control, right? We've probably all dealt with injuries. We've all dealt with, uh, you know, some of us are, Brad, you've been very open up, psychological stuff that get in the way of us like living our best life. There are barriers that prevent us. The thing that keeps us happy is our perception of self and the control around the, uh, our control of the things that we control. And we do not always control how we will look physically. And that is very, very dangerous. So there is something much deeper that goes on and is the self-perception. The other aspect, which is the behavioral part of like, how do you prevent this vicious cycle of thinking that like, oh, if I get really lean, I'll suddenly be happier. And there are a lot of people who get super lean and they're not, right? Because A, that wasn't what was making them unhappy in the first place. And B, the things that they do to their life and the things they end up sacrificing to get there was so much more. It was so much more effort than they ever thought that what was waiting on the other side of this image is not what they imagined. And I know this because I've been around some of the fittest, leanest people in the world and they they live in a prison of their own making because they just keep on thinking, if I only get leaner, if I only look better, I'll be happier. And that's not what's standing in the way. But the other aspect is our self-perception is what it allows it and makes it easier for us to take action. James Clear talks about this at Atomic Habits. I cite a lot of his work. I had him read sections of this book to make sure that it was like accurate. And a big part of this is, you know, building habits that stick. A lot of us wait for motivation to come. And we think that we're going to get motivated. We're going to then take action. And then our self-perception is going to change. In reality, Motivation is the last thing to come. We have to change our self-perception. We have to change fundamentally who we think we are and what we are capable of, and then take action on that, and then the motivation will follow. And a lot of people will say, like, I don't understand. If I am overweight or I am unhealthy, how am I supposed to think that I am a healthy person? And you know, the confidence of that should be in the evidence, and the evidence is knowing where to look. Someone who is not healthy and never wants to be healthy doesn't spend a second of their thought on what it would take to be healthier. Someone who is interested in picking up a book, someone who has like even downloaded an app, even though they've never used it before, someone who has tried to go grocery shopping and do a better job. There's all this evidence that you should have confidence that you care about your health because you are trying to do something to make yourself better. So from a perception standpoint, it is important to realize that if you did not care there would be no effort that would be a thought. And there is a big difference between perceiving yourself as someone who cares about your health and figuring out what works. And that's where I said, like, this is the rigged game. If people just looked at what their intent was, right, it would be very, very easy to disseminate if you cared about something, right? Anyone like listening to this or anyone who's ever tried to diet before, even if they failed, they care because they were willing to go and like make themselves miserable. The problem isn't like, who you think you are. The problem is like, 
how you've been put in an environment that whether it's the food environment, whether it's the diet environment, constantly makes you fail. And we are all creatures of reinforcement on some level. And when you fail one time after another, it's so easy to think that the problem is you. You're not healthy. You're not motivated enough. You don't care. When, when the problem isn't that like, you're not, it's not that you're not a healthy person. It's that you haven't been given a good opportunity to achieve, to succeed. And when you change that framing, not from like, I am unhealthy, I'm healthy, but I have not figured out what works. It seems ridiculous, but from a psychological standpoint, just like manifesting, just like doing vision exercises of being able to say, it allows you to stick with something and the sustainability and consistency with a plan, right? What you can stay consistent with is really the key to becoming healthier. It's not the sacrifice. It's not the extremes. It's being consistent. And like, you can't allow your mindset to be the thing that prevents you from being inconsistent because that's where you have that dissonance. That's where your mind is essentially undercutting every behavior and making it harder for these healthy habits to take place. So I say like so much of it starts with the mind. It really is a psychology book because the key to better health is better habits. The key to better habits is a better mindset. The key to a better mindset is understanding what is corroding the very foundational elements that allow you to be healthy. The great analogy I give that everyone can think about is that, you know, I learned a long time ago from a great trainer named Alan Cosgrove. He said, you know, when you think about setting up structures of success, you never want to be firing a cannon from a canoe. And so many people are out there, the wellness industry will give you these cannons. They'll give you the cryotherapy. They'll give you the heat shock proteins and, and this and that. They'll give you the fasting. They'll give you the counting macros. But they don't give you a battleship to fire these tools off. And again, some of these things can work. But if you do not have a stable foundation to change these behaviors, if you do not know the healthiest habits and what to master, it doesn't matter what these tools can do. They're just going to mess you up more. You're just going to keep capsizing. So before we go into some of these healthy habits, we've talked a lot about the problem. I'd be remiss not to ask, you spoke eloquently about identity and about how looking super shredded and being super shredded for many people isn't worth the cost and or those people aren't happy, but then you identify with it. And it's just like this rat race to maintain a body or a view of oneself that is probably unattainable or unsustainable. The foreword of your book is written by Arnold Schwarzenegger. I know he's a good friend of yours. He's a colleague. He is someone who clearly has had to go through some kind of leaving old identity behind or integrating with new identity. Can you speak to how Arnold has been able to do this? Because as you were answering that question, I couldn't help but think like this was someone whose entire identity, at least his front stage identity, was his physique and his body. And now he's older. He doesn't look like he used to look. So if you can shed any insight into how he made that transition, I think it'd be really interesting. It's a, it's a great story because there, again, it, everything, you know, you just, I think if you were to summarize the biggest problem of the wellness industry among many is that like we create these black and white universes. 
right? So on one end, it is like, it is understanding like what your why is and what you want to achieve. A lot of people try to attain a certain goal because other people are doing it and not because there is a deeper meaning behind what it is that they want to achieve. We think we want six pack abs, but really we like, we just want to be leaner. We want to have more energy. We want to be able to exercise. We want to be able to be around for our kids for a long time. We want to feel willing and able. And the aesthetic is a byproduct of that, but it's not really what we want because like most people don't give a fuck if you're shredded. They don't. Like no one cares. I got the leanest in my life and I could have probably never had less interest in me from the people that I wanted to be interested in me, right? That's not what won people over. Arnold wanted to be the best bodybuilder in the world. He knew that from the time he was a young man. It wasn't just about being healthy. And he wanted to be the best bodybuilder in the world because he wanted to get into Hollywood. And he knew that from a very young age. You can go back to the tapes. His consistency with his vision is amazing. It's what is best about him. He is incredible at identifying a vision. He is incredible and merciless about his routine. Arnold still works out six days per week. Arnold has built a perfect habit loop where he gets up in the morning, he makes himself coffee, he feeds his animals, he has friends show up to his house to get him to ride his bike to the gym. They go and train at Gold's and he'll train at home if it's raining. He will ride his bike to breakfast, get his reward to close the habit loop, and then he will go home. He has support, right? He has the trigger, he has all of it. So training is still important. But training was different because it was a singular goal that he knew. It wasn't about like, oh, I want to get healthier, I want to expect. He wanted to be the greatest bodybuilder of all time because he believed that was his ticket to America. And that required extreme sacrifice. But the sacrifice isn't what people always thought. It was an obsession and a love and building this rock hard mindset and talking about like he had to make it so routine that it was no different than brushing his teeth right? Lifting weights became brushing his teeth. And he's like, I was born a bodybuilder. I will die a bodybuilder. Like he will not stop working out. It's just that the amount of time he spends working out is what changed more than anything. And the intensity, the guy's had two open heart surgeries. He's had multiple surgeries. So he adapts with time. But if you read the Ford, the end of it and why he wrote the Ford for this book. And I was so honored. It was like, he appreciated the approach that for most people, Health is about what I talk about, like expanding this idea of the comfort zone where you have to take things that uh, challenge your comfort so you grow as a human, but keep certain things that you like because being healthy is about enjoying your life. And Arnold says for him, that means being the guy who wanted to be the greatest bodybuilder in the world, but also wanted to go to the house of pies and eat entire pie and want to be able to eat Kaiser Schnarm, which is his favorite dessert that his mom would make him at any time. Arnold, a couple weeks before show, uh, show, would go to the House of Pies in Los Angeles with Franco and eat an entire pie or two. So how was Arnold so shredded and forget about carbon manipulation and all that because nutrition was a different place? Arnold would train pre-competition four to five hours a day. He did what was called the double split. So it, when we say like you can't like out-train your diet, for the average person, that is true. But... When you are training like Arnold Schwarzenegger in the 60s and 70s and training two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon and understanding at that time, Arnold was also like laying down the foundation, pun intended, of a real estate empire where he was building buildings with Franker. So he's doing manual labor during the day. That guy was a calorie crushing machine where the rare exception, he truly did out train his diet by training four to five hours 
per day. And he's not saying you have to do that. And he's not saying you have to give up your pies or your Kaiserschnarm. He's saying you should know what health looks like to you and that find that perfect medium where he was willing to press the gas on the training side of thing, but also allow him to eat and enjoy the things that he wanted because otherwise he wouldn't be healthy. And today he doesn't train four to five hours, but he'll still eat the desserts and he makes other tweaks that allows him to find that healthy balance. So then my next question is shifting gears to the solution to the problem that we've identified. And I think that our average growth equation listener is probably not hooked on a particular branded diet. Perhaps they might have an allergy. If there's someone that uh, struggles with diabetes, maybe they're on a specific diet. But for the average growth equation listener, they're not on one of these diets. And yet there is probably what I'm going to say a legitimate fear that as people age in this country and you look at a bell curve, the majority of people are obese or overweight. The majority of people have issues with their cholesterol. There's hypertension. So there are real consequences to just kind of going with the flow of the built food environment. We discussed the diet manipulation extreme. I love that metaphor, that analogy in the book about the cannonball from a canoe. So what can one do if they don't want to be prey to either of those extremes? What are kind of some of your basic rules? What works for you? If you were counseling me and I just said, hey, I want to maintain pretty good lean body mass. I don't care about being shredded. I want to be active. I want to be around for a long time for my kids. I enjoy training for training, so I want to be able to train. But I also really struggle without some rules because I just end up eating like shit. Right. And I think so. the foundation here is built upon the idea of of like where the book title came from. And admittedly, I didn't initially call this book, You Can't Screw This Up. I had a test group of 500 people. And in the process of leading this 500 people, the one thing I kept on hearing is like, even from those who are being super successful, it's, I'm going to screw this up. I'm going to screw this up. Even the people, I've lost 10 pounds. I'm going to screw this up. And instead of being like, no, you're not, I, I paused to ask like, why? In, in, in general, people had two reactions. It's just like their reaction is like, I can't possibly maintain perfection with this. And the other is like, they anticipate that at some point, like something is going to get much harder, much more difficult. And to that, I would say, one, like you don't ever have to be 100% with things. So before I share what I will talk about tools instead of rules, right? Because I think people, find, again, it's like, how do we work with people's psychology to put them in a position? People get weird about the idea of a rule. And it's just a word. But the idea of a rule is this very constraining environment of like black and white. I have to always do this all of the time. It is a world of absolutes, right? We don't not we don't speak in absolutes in fitness and nutrition because that's a myth. We have very strong, resilient bodies. We should stop acting like we are a bunch of the snowflakes. The reason we struggle with our health is because we're constantly manipulating it in a negative way. So the foundation of this is like you can't screw this up means A, pick a plan to start that is so easy that it's hard to fail, right? Build this battleship. So I would start, I talk about inversion, which is again, another method of like starting at the end. If I were to come to you six months from now and asked you, why did you fail? You would probably have an idea of like where things went wrong. And and then I would try and key in on like, what was the one that was really the hardest thing that kept on throwing you off? For a lot of people, for instance, it's like lunch at work, right? So by starting at the end, you can identify like, 
where is the area that I'm most likely to fail? And then let's build a simple solution for that, right? So it's more about uh, identifying where your problem points are and then realizing you don't have to be perfect. So the foundation of a good plan is A, make it so easy that it's hard to fail, and then you will be able to progress. And then number two is like, stop aiming for 100% weeks and instead aim for no 0% weeks. Because you know it, I know it, Steve knows it, we all know it. The healthy people, I don't think they ever hit 100%. Like 25% of the time, I feel I wake up and be like, I can conquer the world. 25%, one every four days. And that might be overestimating it, right? Another 25%, it's like so so. It's like I don't feel great, but I don't feel bad. And like 50% of the time, like something's going on, I'm stressed, I didn't sleep enough, like something's going on with my kids, there's something going on at work where it's like, but you still got to show up. So if you get away from the idea of you need to be 100%, and like if you miss a day of training, if you don't eat perfect one day, the idea isn't you don't need to compensate. Stop acting like you screwed up. The mistakes are in the compensation, not in the initial error, because the error is not an error. The error is a sustained, planned part of living, right? We're not taking you on a detour. These are bumps in the road. It's like when you're driving on a perfectly paved path and you hit one little bump, you'd be like, oh no, I got to go off and drive through the forest. But that's what we do in dieting. We have one little aberration and then we go off and we detox and we like cut out everything and we try and work out three times and we disrupt ourselves by acting like we screwed up. So that's part of the battleship, right? Starting with easier behaviors that we can master because that builds the battleship, not acting that we're going to screw up. When you do something that doesn't feel right, just return to the norm. And then I talk about the tools and I outline five of them, but like some easy ones for people are like, stop thinking about like proteins or carbs, right? It, 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 sorry, protein or carbs or fats. This is usually the battle, right? Like I need to cut out fats. I need to cut out carbs because if we get into like food science, it gets really freaking confusing for people. And it's usually very overstated, right? Because like we try to make things complicated so that people are vulnerable. You don't have to choose. You get to choose what you want, but like the continuum is, I say someone for eating healthy, the foundation of a plate is protein and fiber. I don't care if you're plant-based or you believe in animals. We could argue about this all day. Yeah, check with your doctor to make sure your blood is okay, to make sure you're healthy, because you want to look under the hood to make sure that something is not off. But like a lot of things end up being glorified. Some people say that you must eat all plants. Some people say you should live off of red meat. I have my own personal preferences. But what I care more about is that people need to eat protein and fiber, because as we try to lose weight, our body is cruel and it makes us hungrier. The more weight that we lose, this is what no one talks about. Oh, we're going to teach you how to lose like 20 pounds in four weeks. Guess what's going to happen? You're going to become hungrier. And I would rather show people like what to expect so they don't freak out and they're like, oh no, what is wrong? Uh, because hunger is a, is a mental state. It's a mental state. You have a satiety center in your stomach that sends a signal to your brain saying, I'm full. So our job is to work with our brain to know how to like make it satisfied. It's like we have to learn how to eat to be satisfied. And there are three different levels of satisfaction. So if I'm teaching people how to eat healthier, I'm saying, I need you to learn how to be more satisfied with your eating rather than here's a rule. And you can apply any of these three tools or all of these three at once. So I outline five tools over, but like satisfaction is based on three things essentially. One, eating to the point to give your brain a signal that you're going to be full. So protein and fiber will keep you fuller for longer. You choose the proteins or fibers you want. Animal proteins, plant-based proteins, pescatarian-based proteins, protein and fiber. 
get the fiber you want. Even if you hate even eating fruits and vegetables, you know what? Find like an insoluble fiber, get a metamucil, do what you need to do to kind of make it easy and then you can progress, right? Protein and fiber are the foundation. Then two, people laugh at this one, but it, they laugh at it because it's, again, it's so boring that it can't work, but it is so incredibly effective. Slow down while you're eating and pay more attention to your meals. As we were talking about the satiety center, it takes about 20 minutes for your stomach to send a signal to your brain. So how often do people eat these meals and like, I'm still hungry and then they eat and then they're so stuffed and they're like, how did I, I wasn't, I didn't feel full. And it's like, yeah, you just ate so quickly. The average person takes nine minutes to eat a meal. And then compounding this is again, our brains actually want to help us, but we now eat distracted. We scroll on our phones or we watch TV and our brains, our eyes are sending signal to our brain being like, look at all this food. They've done research where people eat meals and they're blinded right? So essentially they can't see the food on the plate. It's the same amount of food. And the people who are blinded end up eating more than the people who just are looking at their food. So slow down, try and take 20 minutes, enjoy the meal, process the meal, pay attention to what you're eating. And the third one of satisfaction is don't cut out all of the things that you love. Because we are, as human creatures, right, we want what we can't have. And there was a fascinating study of like in, uh, it was in the journal Appetite, they told people just for one meal, one meal only, don't eat all of these foods. We're going to put all these foods in front of you, don't eat them. What ended up happening? People ate 133% more calories in that one meal. A single meal. What do you think happens when you tell people you can never eat this stuff again? When we get to this mindset again, ultra-processed foods, they are a big problem. All processing, not a problem. Processing can be used for good. Ultra-processed foods, the foods that are genetically engineered to combine salt, sugar, and fat in a way that are hyper-palatable are a problem. End stop. And if you eat them occasionally, you will not do any damage. I give the a law of percentages here that let's say the average person, and this is probably understating, it eats three meals a day, seven meals a week, twenty, uh, you know, seven days a week, 21 meals in a week on average. Let's say you have three meals that are off. It's more than the cheap meal, right? Three meals that are off. If you're 18 out of 21 in your meals, right? About 90%. Where in life are you 90% good enough and you don't get great results? Where, right? In most things, right? In sports, if you're like, 30%. You're like in baseball, you're the you're the best. If you're 60% as a pastor, you're amazing, you're a pro bowler. If we're anywhere in the 80-90% realm of being good enough, the results are going to be so fantastic and we I can't understate that enough, but we act like the moment we have an ultra processed food, the moment we have a pastry or a piece of cake, we think we've poisoned ourselves. We've had sugar. Oh no. Guys, our body literally converts energy into sugar through gluconeogenesis so that our brains and bodies can function. Our bodies in the absence of sugar will turn food into sugar. And yet we act like our body can't handle any sugar and we're going to die, but it's the catastrophizing of this. So I teach people, if you're going to start anywhere, no matter what your dietary preferences are, no matter what your goals are, I want you to feel in control of your eating by being more satisfied. Protein and fiber in every single meal, whichever foods you enjoy. Don't be thinking that you have to cut out all of the foods that you enjoy and slow down and be present in your meals and the amount of satiety and satisfaction and mentally not burning out, which is a big reason. People quit diets because they just burn out. They can, and there are other tools, but like those three alone 
will serve you in any one of them, right? Any one of them. Same thing, when you're having dessert, enjoy it. Because what ends up happening, and they've started looking at this, people who do not enjoy their meals and people who live in shame and guilt end up eating more postprandial. So they end up eating more after that meal because they didn't sit and enjoy it because they were too busily internalizing the guilt that they couldn't satisfy and be in that moment. So focusing on satisfaction is such a big part of enjoying eating. And it's just interesting because if you look at the research, more people are eating out than ever before. And more people are more dissatisfied with the process of eating, even though they're eating the foods that they love. All right. So I want the rubber to hit the road here because I think our listeners are are really going to like this. So I am going to quickly highlight how I try to eat and it's not perfect. And I want you to try to tell me what I could do better. Okay. Does that work for you real quick? Let's do it. Okay. So Monday to Friday, I kind of have a set menu where breakfast, lunch, and dinner, there's maybe three or four options on each of those menus, but I'm basically eating the same thing. Okay. And for me, I feel my best, very similar to you. I eat a lot of protein, fiber, and I train a lot, so I eat tons of carbohydrates. Me too. I feel pretty love sluggish when I, I eat fats. I don't know if that's my brain, my body, whatever. On the weekends, I open it up and I say, we're going to go out to dinner. I'm going to get a sausage, egg, and cheese breakfast burrito in the morning because I love it. I'm going to feel sluggish and want to take a nap. Whatever. I'm not perfect. And I basically rinse and repeat that cycle. On the weekends, I pay a little bit more attention to quantity because I, I, I have a, a tendency, or if I didn't, I could just eat myself into a hole. Forget about my body, my, my overall weight. I just feel like shit. And then during the week, to your point about dessert, we don't really eat dessert, but I've always got like a big bag of peanut M&Ms or Swedish fish in the freezer. And I'll pick at those after dinner for a little. Okay. And then when I'm hungry and I want a snack, I eat fruit. Okay. So there are a couple things here. One, when do you eat? Like, are the, does the timing change at all? Um, if life gets in the way, I mean, as you know, I have two young kids, but generally the timing is pretty, pretty consistent. Okay. And that's good. So I, I used to be a big fan of intermittent fasting. I'm not, I'm not, again, not saying it doesn't work. I just think a lot of the hype is bullshit. There is one thing that I like about intermittent fasting. And it's more conceptually as opposed to physiologically, right? And what I mean by that is that a lot of people will associate many benefits that have in your body, right? Hormone changes and autophagy and all these things that are just like sensationalized. But when we do not put boundaries on like open kitchen, closed kitchen, we open up the possibility of overeating because we don't create a framework of like, when should I not be eating? In the same way that it is healthy for people to have boundaries on when they should not work, right? People are overstressed and burned out because they will answer emails at 12 o'clock at night, right? That is not healthy. So I don't care about feeding and fasting windows. I don't care if it's 14 hours, 12 hours, six hours. I don't care. What is very helpful, and there was one amazing study that showed what happened when people moved up their breakfast an hour and a half and moved up their dinner an hour and a half, changed nothing else, right? We're not telling you to eat different foods. We just created boundaries on the day. They ate less. So for a lot of people, and this tends to change on the weekends, which is why I ask, you want to just have an open kitchen and a closed kitchen time. And those times can be up to you, but if we allow ourselves to eat mindlessly at any time, 
we will eat mindlessly at any time, right? It's like discipline is based on parameters and boundaries. So people should have that. So it seems like you're doing a good job with that. Two, uh, how often do you snack on those peanut butter M&Ms? Um, I'd say I'm paying enough attention where maybe it's three nights a week. And when I'm snacking on them, I'm talking like a handful of five to 10, yeah. not a whole bag. You probably have a lot of discipline, so it doesn't matter. But in general, the way to probably make it instead of three times a week, one to two times a week is proximity. This is a great study that Pierre Chardon did at Google, where it's just like, what happens when like Googlers were eating too many snacks? And they're like, well, we don't want to take away the snacks because we're going to have a freaking revolt. So what we should do instead is just move the snacks further away so they are harder to reach. It's very easy for you to reach into the freezer and get them. So I'm not saying remove them. I don't necessarily agree with the whole idea of purging something because, like again, it's going to create that restriction. Make them harder to reach and grab so that you have to put in some effort. A lot of times we are our own worst enemy. In the same way that we want to make it easier for us to train, stop putting up barriers that make it harder for us to train. I don't care if it's like going for a walk in your home. Movement is our friend. Make it easier for us to move. When it comes to the foods that we do not want to restrict because we don't want to be craving them so much, make them just put them in a place where you have to get a little bit of effort. I don't care like if you have to move a chair to then climb up on it because on such a high shelf, you're going to eat less. And in that Google experiment, when they moved it to a place that was harder to reach, people ate 200 calories per less per day just by making them harder to achieve. And the last thing I would say is that like, how many of those weekend meals do you feel just have no boundary whatsoever? Oh, they don't. Like I, I know enough and because I've eaten myself into feeling like such shit the rest of the day, it's like a hangover. I kind of know like when that limit is right, and I, I pay attention to, to the size and the portion. So instead of ordering two breakfast burritos, I just get one. And even if I'm a little bit hungry after, because as you mentioned, it's the perfect combination of like sodium, fat, and carbohydrate or sugar, uh, I just stop. And I will say, and, and perhaps this is just like practice discipline, and it gets back to your not being perfect. Like part of the reason the peanut M&Ms are just in there is sometimes in the morning when I'm making coffee the intermittent fasting, low carb people are going to hate me. I just have a little bit of a sweet tooth and I suck on a couple M&Ms while I'm making coffee. Right. Right. But like, if you're able to control it, like that's the thing, like poison is always in the dose and that's pretty good. I think the mistake people make on weekends is that they think it's a free for all for all meals. And that's why I don't like the idea of a cheat day one because like people feel like they need to like punish and then compensate. We got to like get out of way. Again, it's like terminology, but we think certain things based on the way that we label them. For better or for worse, that's what we do as humans. Um, so the mentality of a cheat day is like, oh, I'm doing something wrong and now I need to like punish myself for it. But people will go off the rails for the entire weekend. And the thing that I recommend is like, you want to keep in mind how many of these ultra-processed meals you can have because you can eat them and it's okay. And if there's like a week where you have a lot of them, again, you can tolerate it, but people will turn to the weekend and act like every single meal is a free for all. And I say you really want to be limiting these ultra processed meals to like one to three per week. And some things aren't ultra processed. Like chocolate doesn't have to be ultra processed. So there are things that are like sweet and enjoyable that we can have. We're talking about things that have sugar, fat, and salt added in an unnatural way to make it so that our brain is like literally being like, I need more of this. And like that fundamentally, I think is important. And then one other thing which we need to ask about, which is just like asking about like sleep schedules as well, because the other thing that happens is when people have disrupted sleep or they change up the consistency of when they go to sleep and when they wake up, 
that can end up having an impact on hunger as well. So a lot of times we think that our weekend eating behaviors are a byproduct of, oh, it's just the weekend, I'm changing up. Sometimes the trigger, the first domino itself, is that we change up our sleeping patterns in a way that make us more susceptible to overeat because it just one night of sleeping less than six hours per night can be enough to cause the hormonal changes that will light up the areas in the brain that will make you uh, adjust the hormones of like fullness and satiety. So it is harder to make you feel full and it makes you more likely to crave the things you know you want to limit. So like sleep deprivation, even just a little bit, it doesn't have to be chronic, can push you more towards overeating and eating the stuff that you want to limit. So sometimes even on the weekend, if like you're going to loosen up a little bit and that's great, I believe in that, Make sure that you still try and stay pretty consistent with your sleep. And if not, just be aware of that. And like little simple habits that help people out. When you're hungry and you feel like you're going to like truly be ravenous, like just check in with yourself and be like, I know what I'm about to do. Um, Should I go for a walk? Should I go drink some water? Those two things, going for a walk, getting outside or drinking water. Will I help you identify whether you are eating out of boredom or out of like chemical triggers or if you're eating truly out of hunger. And if it's truly out of hunger, go and enjoy, be present, and then just like get back to whatever you're doing because what's going to happen, you're going to have that one meal. You're going to feel better if you truly honor that meal. You're not going to crave it if you are present because you just satisfied the craving. You just did the thing. And then there's no need to worry about like having another gluttonous meal, right? Because like you just were in it. So this has been fantastic, Adam. I mean, your book is filled with insights. I know you've got to run. If if you have time for one quick hit answer or question. Yeah. So in your book, you had this section where you wrote, carbs don't make you fat, neither does the timing of your meals, gluten or the glycemic index. You go on, but essentially you, you've hit like these things that are often touted in the nutrition world. What do you quickly say to someone who has maybe followed someone who said X is evil or you shouldn't do Y? What do you say to them to get them to open up their mind and say, okay, I'm going to consider this different approach? I ask them what it is that they want to achieve with their health. It's where I always start with people. What is it that you want to achieve? Do you want to like remove an entire food? Do you want to fundamentally change everything about your lifestyle or do you want to be healthier in a way that you can sustain? And most people tell me, you know, they'll tell a story of like where they're frustrated and I will be able to guide them and show them like how they got to that point of frustration. And people get frustrated because I'm a, I'm a bit agnostic about diet. I don't believe one type of diet works and it's not that it's my belief. That's what the evidence shows. Right, it's so fascinating. There, years ago, New England Journal of Medicine, one of the most credible journals, does this like it's the Super Bowl diet study, right? Where they're complaining, comparing like vegan, low fat, low carb, Weight Watchers, like an omnivorous, like zone type diet, zone being like equal amount of carbs, fats, and proteins, and like it's it's hype, like in in internal world, right? It's hype. You're like, oh my goodness, we're pitting five diets against each other. We're gonna see what's best, and it was the most anticlimactic result ever. And you see this repeatedly now, right? The result was they all worked effectively and all that mattered was what people did consistently, right? And again, it's a boring answer, but it makes complete sense because the things that we do with savage consistency 
tend to deliver great results. We were, you guys were joking about it recently online about like Brian Johnson, who's out here like paying all these millions of dollars to go and like optimize his body. And like, would he have been just as well off or better off if he would have hired a great coach who put him on a great plan, who kept him consistent and where it was able to deliver higher level results. And we, we like to downplay the process, but the process of behavioral change is one that is progressive. And what I tell people is that we're led to believe that in order to become better, we must suffer. And I'm not saying that there's not difficulty in the process of change. Behavioral change is hard, but we don't need to conflate hard with suffering, right? If we talk about the Yerkes-Dodson curve, which is this beautiful inverted U where like on the X-axis, right, we have your anxiety or your stress. And on the Y-axis, you have performance, how well you can do something. And with too little stress and anxiety, we do not change, right? If you're just on the couch and no one's forcing you to step outside that comfort zone, you don't change at all. And on the other end of it is like if there's too much stress, if there's too much change, we are not in our zone of genius where we will be able to make the behavioral change. We have to find that Goldilocks, right? That sweet spot. And that's where I talk about the idea isn't that we have to abandon our comfort zone. And I ask them like, do you think that you need to be uncomfortable at all times? What I suggest is that you need to expand your comfort zone. You need one foot in the familiar and one foot in the unfamiliar. You need one habit that is maybe a little bit difficult, but not so hard because difficult is always in the eye of the beholder. And the example I give in the book is that if you take someone into the gym who's never been in the gym before, and you ask them to do a bodyweight squat, that might be incredibly challenging, especially if you ask them to do it 10 times and repeat it for three sets and do a couple other exercises. It's going to be a challenge for them. You don't need to put them under 300 pounds to prove your point. In the same way that if you want to teach someone how to swim, you don't throw them in the deep end. You have them dip their toe in the shallow end, learn how to tread water, and then they progress. Diet and nutrition is the same thing. We should be progressing people at easier steps that they can master so they can feel confident. And what happens, the funny thing that happens is when we take a progressive approach, when we teach addition and subtraction without before we start with calculus and algebra, is that people become more confident. People build healthier habits. And then people decide to abandon the behaviors that no longer serve them instead of being told you can't live this way. And when people get to change their behavior on their own schedule, that is when long-term change really happens. I don't think all the people out there pushing these plans do it on purpose. I think some of them do because it's manipulation and they care more about making money than helping people. I will, yeah, that's just, I've met some of these people and I can't, I've looked them in the eye and they don't care. I don't care about being right. I care about helping people. I've been wrong about many things before, and I will be the first one to admit it. If there's one thing I know about helping people, it's that you you cannot give them a one-size-fits-all plan, and you cannot start them where you are now. If I told someone to do exactly what I do today, they would fail, because it's not where I started. I didn't get to where I am today by doing what I'm doing today. Just like a business doesn't go from what they did to go from 1 million to 100 million is not what they did to go from $0 to 1 million. We progress, we adjust, and we learn what works for us so that we can keep what makes us happy and allows us to perform that sweet spot on the York Dodson curve. And we abandon the stuff that doesn't. We have to stop trying to purge people of all their bad habits and instead trying to enable them to build good habits 
so they can get rid of the stuff that doesn't serve them and then continue to build. Because what happens is the person who started with the body weight squat, they then get to the bar. Then they get 135 and one day they're at 300. And the reason they got to 300 is because we didn't crush them the first day they entered into the gym. And that is what I care about. I do not want to crush people. I want to give them an environment inside an environment, right? Our environment, Brad started this episode. He's right. Our environment is stacked against us. So our goal is not to fight the environment. We will lose. That's what all these diets do. We te- we try to say, let's fight the environment. Let's fight the man. No, we have to learn to coexist the envir- with the environment by creating an internal environment that allows us to succeed so we have a better chance to win. Well, Adam, oh, go ahead, Steve. No, I was just going to say that's fantastic. I feel like you are preaching to the choir that, you know, Brad and I, that's similar missions on all this stuff. Everything you just said about diet could easily, you know, be about exercise or wellness or anything of that. I just want the listeners, if you've enjoyed this conversation, to just check out your book. I mean, it's phenomenal. I've read a lot in the diet, fitness, wellness area, and your book is fundamentally different in a very positive way. So if you're listening, you can't screw this up. Why eating, takeout, enjoying dessert, and taking the stress out of dieting leads to weight loss that lasts. Check it out. Buy it. You won't, you won't regret it. Adam Bornstein, we really appreciate you making the time and um, doing this good work. So thanks for coming on the show and we'll definitely stay in touch. Best of luck with the book. Thanks, guys.